Welcome to the Ready to Thrive podcast. My name is Jacqueline, and I don't know if you've ever felt like you are just surviving your life. I know I have, and that's why I created this space. I want to help you move from surviving to thriving. My goal is to help you get unstuck and actually enjoy your life. Each week, I'll be sharing practical tips and always point you to Jesus. So what are you waiting for? Let's get ready to thrive. Hello and welcome to Ready to Thrive. I am so excited to share this conversation that I had with Sissy Goff with you today. Now, if you know someone who has a teen, a preteen, or even a child who struggles with a little bit of anxiety, I would say this is a great episode to share with them. And if you've never done this before, if you're listening on your iPhone, there are actually three dots at the bottom of this episode and you can click those three dots and it just says share. And so you can text it to a friend to share them in various other ways. You can even take a screenshot, tag Sissy and I on Instagram and share it with more people. I would love to share this important conversation uh, with as many people as possible. Anxiety is definitely not a new thing and it's definitely not something that just kids or teens struggle with. This can be something that um, really comes at so many of us, especially I would say all of us in the past season we've been walking through. And so this is a great conversation with Sissy who has 30 years of uh, walking with people, walking with girls, boys and girls um, in this specific uh, genre of anxiety. And so my hope for you is that you will get some hope through this episode, get some tools. And I also want to share with you um, two resources that I have for you. One is a lies versus truth download. It's just a PDF. You can get it off my website, JacquelineWeidern.com or through the show notes. Um, Just a way to sit down and begin to identify, hey, maybe some of these things coming my way aren't true. And maybe some things I've been believing about myself for a long time may not be true. And it just gives you a chance to write them down and replace some of those things with the truth. And if you want a deeper dive into that, I have my course Tangled that I've shared lots before on here, but really taking a look at what what are the things that are going on inside of our heart? What are some things that, again, we may not, some thoughts, some things that people have said over us that we may have been believing for a long time that may not in fact be true or be helpful. And so again, that you can grab through my website or through the link in the show notes. Well, we're going to dive into this awesome conversation I had with Sissy Goff. Hello and welcome to Ready to Thrive. I am sitting here with the lovely Sissy Goff. She is the Director of Child and Adolescent Counseling at Daystar Counseling Ministries in Nashville, Tennessee. And since 1993, she has been helping girls and their parents find confidence in who they are and hope in who God is making them to be, both as individuals and as families. Sissy is the author of several books, and she is a sought-after speaker for parenting events. And her most recent book is Brave, a teen girl's guide to battle, to beating worry and anxiety. And I am so excited for this conversation with Sissy Um, She's the real deal. We are having this conversation in between um, really her time off uh, from running camp for kids. And so this is something you can just tell um, if you've read Sissy's books, if you have listened to her on a podcast, you just know that she really does have a deep heart for kids, uh, for seeing them thrive. And I know she's going to help. Even if you don't have kids, she's going to help us with um, anxiety and things that we're things that we're dealing with in this season. So Sissy, welcome to Ready to Thrive. Thank you. Oh, I'm so honored to be here. It's so fun to get to talk to you. Well, I want to dive right in. Um, Sissy, this issue, this um, anxiety is not a new thing. This is something that's been going on for a long time. Um, But things definitely have escalated in the season we've been in. And, um, you know, and even before that, the, this book that you have written, I just want to say right off the bat, this is actually a book for teen girls. Like this isn't a, this isn't a parenting book. This isn't a book for, um, just for moms and dads. And so I think it actually could be a great book for parents to read alongside their kids. But I just want to encourage you, this is a resource 
that is for kids. So I'm so excited about that. Um, but Sissy, I am a high school teacher. I've been a high school teacher for 15 years. Oh, thank you for um, what you do. I'm so grateful for that. All the things you do, but yeah. that included for sure. Thank you. And I, um, even before that was a young life leader. And so I feel like I've spent time with teenagers. You spent time with teenagers. Just tell me right off the bat, what have you seen even in the last five, 10 years change when it comes to teenagers and anxiety? Ooh, that's a good question. It's so interesting. I mean, you know, both of us have been at this work a long time of helping and loving kids. And I have been counseling. I can't even believe I've been doing this long. It makes me feel so old, but almost 30 years. And so, like you said, I mean, to track the changes feels, it is amazing to watch and I mean, disheartening in some ways, but, but I'm, well, I have been more concerned in probably the last three years than I've ever been. And I'm more encouraged today as we're sitting in the midst of hopefully things getting better with COVID than I think I've been in a long time. So that feels like good news. But I do think we have to talk about the bad news first, or at least talk about where they are. And, you know, we, I've written a couple of books, I mean, in the last few years that touch on anxiety. One was probably six years ago now, two of my coworkers and I wrote a book called Are My Kids on Track, a parenting book. And it talked about the four emotional and four social and four spiritual milestones we felt like all kids needed to reach to grow up really as healthy individuals. And out of that, I had made this comment about girls and anxiety. And at the time I said, one in eight kids were dealing with anxiety and girls were twice as likely. And so my publisher came to me and said, well, I also said the age of onset was eight. And so he came to me and said, okay, if this is the deal, will you write a book for girls at that age? Will you write a book for elementary age girls about anxiety? And I said, you know, as you can imagine, as a therapist, I said, only if I can write one for parents too. And so I set out to write this book for little girls, which is called Braver, Stronger, Smarter, and one for parents called Raising Worry-Free Girls and, and parents of girls of all ages. But when I did that research, so now we're eight months before COVID, probably the statistics were one in four kids and girls still twice as likely. And so in just that short period of time, it had ramped up that much pre-COVID. And so there was such a shift in the degree of anxiety, particularly among girls, which obviously we can talk about why it's more girls than boys. But I felt really concerned about the numbers going up. And then COVID hit. And you know, I went from counseling in my office here in Nashville to being on Zoom, as all therapists, I think, did. And all of a sudden, the age group I was most worried about were adolescents. I just felt like not only were they significantly more anxious, but I was watching depression creep in a lot more, too. And so that's when I thought, I got to do something for these kids that are beyond my reaching counseling. And so that's when I wrote, right, because I just was so worried and wanted to have something I could put in their hands as a resource. And I jokingly talk about all three of those books as like, they're meant to work people like me out of a job because it's kind of my first few months of counseling in book form. Yeah, so good. Well, I feel like what I love about this book and being able to give people a resource like this is that it's not, um, it's not in theory. It's These are tools that you're giving people as well as, um, you know, looking through being able to especially say to the young girl who's feeling like, maybe this is just me. Maybe mm. there's something wrong with me. Like maybe yes. I am, I have done something. And so being able to, in some ways say like, you know, this isn't, this isn't just you, this is normal. Here are the things that are coming along. And, and there are so many reasons why um, in some ways as a society, as, as a whole, we found ourselves in this position. But I remember um, I've, ha I have three girls um, they're nine, six, and four. Oh, wow. And each time I, um, I'd work part-time, each time I would have another girl, I would go back to work full-time um, because here in Canada, we have a mat leave if you've worked so many hours. And so I noticed each time I went back full-time, things were changing because mm. there's something different when you, especially when you go on a mat leave, like I was gone for a year uh, between my second and third, and I came back, and I remember noticing that um, Snapchat had started. Ooh, yes. And <laughs> instead of kids, because you see these habits, especially when you get to see them as a whole, so I'm in the classroom, you see these habits. And before that, 
you know, cell phones were, they were in backpacks, they weren't really coming out as much. And then all of a sudden, I would see kids with their arm extended. That's when I really started noticing the selfie thing. And they were uh-huh. taking and I said, what are you guys doing? Like, it, it, it seems so <laughs> odd. And I think, you know, because we've kind of become desensitized to the weirdness of selfies and the weirdness of people doing like just TikTok videos out in public or whatever yes. it might be, um, it was still such a strange thing. And I even had to say to the class, you guys can't, you guys can't Snapchat me. Like they were creating entire videos <laughs> of me you. as this yes. like uber pregnant woman. And, um, <laughs> but I noticed, I was like, oh, this is something has changed. Like I saw mm. the shift. Yeah. And one of the other things I've talked about this before on the podcast is when we would go to camp for the for the summer, kids would come to camp for the week and they would actually just put their phone in the camp safe. They wouldn't and they would resist it because as we all do, we're all, everybody is so attached to our phones. And then at the end of the week, they would say, I, I don't actually can you hold on to it for a few mm. more hours? I don't actually want it back because it was like this realization of something different. And so taking those two different pictures, I can see how, um, you know, it's such a hard time to be a teenager right now. And then we threw this pressure of COVID and isolation and all these things. So for the parents who are listening, who have a teenager, who's in this state right now, who's feeling like, hey, yeah, my teenager is, they are more anxious. They Mm -hmm. are more depressed. They are incredibly addicted to their phone. what would you say to those parents? How, where would they start to help their teenager? Well, I hope the book would be a good place to start. And like you said, I mean, I'm telling a lot of parents, I mean, you know, kids, so many adolescents don't want to read a book. And I tell parents of teenagers, my favorite posture is breezy with adolescents. Cause you know, the more direct you try to be with them and intense, the more likely they are to kind of do their own thing. We we have a book about parenting teenagers called The Back Door to Your Teen's Heart that was the first book I ever wrote. But the opening sentence is my favorite line that is, I totally give my boss credit for this, but she says, to the degree that kids can predict you, they'll dismiss you. Ooh, Which wow. is so true of yeah. teenagers, you know? Yeah. So if you were to go to your adolescent daughter, I mean, most of the time and say, I, I heard a therapist talk on a podcast. I think this book would be so helpful for you. <laughs> it is going to gather a lot of dust on that nightstand, you know, but instead I'm telling parents just to go set it on her nightstand, not say a word. Don't even acknowledge that you put it there and then read a copy yourself and then give her a little time. And then after you feel like she's been reading it some, then say, Hey, what do you think about that book? You know, but, but real breezy, not intense. I mean, normally I think with them, to have conversations side to side rather than eyeball to eyeball is better too. And so, I mean, really the book would be one recommendation, although there are definitely families that I see that, like I told a family recently, I wanted the mom and daughter to read the book together to get one copy and the daughter read and highlight things and then pass it to her mom and let her mom see what she's highlighted. I think that's so cool to gain some insight. So that would be one thing. And I think you know, as I just feel like we need to be having conversations with them. And again, it's harder with teenagers, little ones. You can say, here's a feeling chart. Pick me, pick three feelings you've been feeling lately and tell me about them. The teenager is not going to do that. But I think when we can go for a walk, take the dog for a walk outside, again, be shoulder to shoulder, go get coffee with them, you know, watch a movie that can create some conversation, do different things where we're investing in them, but it doesn't feel as intense um, and intimate. I think they get so awkward about intimacy with parents. And so I think anytime we just need to be talking about how they're doing, I'm trying to put up on Instagram, like every Friday, different conversation starters (laughs) with teenagers or younger kids too. But I think I just feel like they're so isolated right now. I sat with a family yesterday that talked about their daughter just had gotten more and more depressed as a result of the isolation, their adolescent, because we know they thrive in relationship. And so I think talking to them is one place. I mean, there are a lot more things we can talk about, but that's where I'd start trying to draw them out and get them to talk. Also having a journal, you write back and forth with your kids is a great thing. Oh, I love that. Well, I think that's good. I think that um, gives people some suggestions as Sissy was saying, like the, there's less intensity, even sometimes driving in the car, right? You're not facing each other. Um, And then even I love that idea of doing a fun activity and not having the 
of pressure on yourself. Like this is the moment where we're going, everything's going to get resolved in this time. Yeah. But just being able to, there's something when you have a shared experience that's fun, even sometimes, you know, like a little bit risky or where you're like, oh, we're doing this, you know, we're getting pulled behind the back of a boat together or something where it draws you into this connection that sometimes will open the door to a conversation later that night or something else, right? Like, and I think part of it is that being available and saying like, I'm anticipating, I've got a few conversation starters in my head. I don't have to push them out right now, but what I love that you shared that. Um, So for the parents of littles, um, I know that um, one thing that's really big right now is this idea of helicopter parenting. And Mm -hmm. have you seen some of that? And I, I feel like just adding a adding a grace disclaimer here as well because I think we can hear things and say, "Oh, this is this is the episode where I find out how I've screwed up as a parent, and this is all my <laughs> fault." Right. Um, but I feel like I would love for you to shoot straight with us at the same time um, because sometimes we do need to hear, you know, what what are the hard truths of ways that we have begun to parent as a culture or other things that have unknowingly, unintentionally um, began to produce a little more anxiety in our kids. So speak to the moms of, of little kids. I love that you use the words unknowingly and unintentionally because you're exactly right. And you're right about the helicopter parenting too. And, and what I'm, you know, as we're talking about trends with kids, I think one of the amazing trends with parents is that I heard somebody say recently, we're kind of the first generation, I'm probably older than the first generation, but parents today are the first generation of parents that are really seeking help emotionally, which is amazing. And so I'm seeing more parents who are having deeper conversations, who are passing around feelings charts. When we were growing up, we sure weren't doing that at our dinner tables, but you know, parents are in tune in a way that I think parents have never been in tune with themselves and trying to be with their kids, which is an amazing gift. And out of that, I think we are often overcompensating for what we feel like we missed. And so I will sit with, well, let me tell you a story that I think is a great example. I, at Daystar, we have, we use this computer program called Therabill and in it, you know, it tells us before we ever see somebody why they're coming in. And so I had a little girl who was eight, who was coming in for anxiety. And, and I saw that before I ever came to get her. And our office is we're it doesn't feel like a counseling office. We're in a yellow house and we have a white picket fence and we have five dogs on staff and we have popcorn always popping in the kitchen. I mean, it's just this really warm, inviting place. And so I know Daystar itself is going to do a lot of work of softening kids. So I already feel pretty confident about that. So this little girl was coming and my office is upstairs and I came down the stairs of Daystar and you can see me, but our listeners can't see me, but I have a really enormous smile. And so I saw this little girl across the way and I smiled and waved at her and she smiled and waved back. And I walked over and said, Hey, I'm Sissy. I'm so excited that you're at Daystar. I want to take you on a tour first. And then I'm going to take you upstairs and we're going to go talk for a little bit. And I have a little dog named Lucy who is going to be so excited to meet you. And this little girl popped up to follow me out of her chair and her mom grabbed her arm and said, do you feel comfortable with that? And this little girl's face kind of fell and it had never occurred to her to not feel comfortable with that until her mom said those words, her very well-intentioned mom. And so then her sweet mom followed us on the whole tour. And as I had the little girl in my office, she sat across the hall from us in the chair waiting. And I, of course, brought this mom in. And as I always do, I said, you know, tell me about your family history. Do you have any anxiety in your family? Kind of already guessing the answer. And she said, like you would guess, yes, I was anxious as a kid and my parents never understood. And so she was hitting it out of the park on understanding her daughter. But like all those books, I have broken into three sections and it's understanding and then help and then hope. Because if we stop with understanding, we're not helping them work through it. We're in tune emotionally, but we're not helping them do that. And every person who counsels anyone with anxiety would say to work through your fear, you basically have to do the scary thing. 
And we do it with a lot of coping strategies in place. We want to give them good tools to do it, but they've got to work through it. And often what we're doing, so I came up with this definition of anxiety, that anxiety is an overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of themselves. And research says the two most common parenting strategies in light of anxiety are escape and avoidance. So she or he comes upon something distressing. I love my child. What else am I going to do but pull him out of it? And when we do that, we're just affirming that definition. Yep, it's too big. You're too small. And so I've got to step in and rescue you. And they don't feel capable. And we're not ever intending to send that message, but that's the message we're sending. Yeah. Well, I feel like it's such a hard balance because I'm thinking of quite a few examples in my head, one of them being... um, when we, our churches are still closed, but when we would be at church, um, it's the, I'm dropping you off at Sunday school and here right. you go. Like, right. Yeah. And all of three of my kids have been like, sorry, what? Like you're, you're just <laughs> leaving me with these strangers. And I always felt like, you know what? I'm never going to leave you if you are really in a, like, if it's not a safe place, if it's a hard, but I, I would leave them, especially when they're little. They would have these rooms where you could kind of peek around and you would look and see. And they'd have a moment, 30 seconds of, I'm upset what happened. And then they would go, oh, there's toys, there's like snacks, I'm here, I'm fine. And so I (laughs) felt like there was kind of this moment of they're learning how to adapt in the situation, be okay. And and again, kind of like you were saying, oh, this is big and scary. Oh, wait, I can do this. Right. And so I, but I have seen, and again, this is not the case for all kids because some kids will be in that place I've helped out in Sunday school where they will scream for an hour. It's, you know, it's not working out. Uh, But I've seen that stress on the parents' faces where they go, I actually don't know what to do here because my kid is crying. I feel bad leaving them. I don't want to abandon them. Again, things could be coming up from their own past. Mm -hmm. Um, But then it is that, that habit of rescue where they're saying, you're right, this is actually hard. I'm going to sit here with you or I'm going to pull you out of this thing. And then does that make sense? Like, I feel like that's an example of kind of the, and it's a hard place for parents because they don't, they don't really know. Plus you have the pressure of these other parents looking around, like, why isn't your kid just rolling with everything? And so it's hard. It is hard. You're exactly right. It is really hard. And I think what you said, I mean, that it brings up often our own stuff. And so but, but I think the thing is, our parents didn't have the understanding piece of it. They were just saying, rub dirt in it and keep going. Right. Rather than, I know this is hard. I can tell you feel fearful and you've got this. You are so capable. I believe in you. And now I want you to talk to yourself. You remind yourself of some truths that you know. And let's take five deep breaths and you go on in there because you got it. So I love yeah. that because you're basically just saying... It doesn't mean as we, because that's the question I have too, as we have kids who are facing these hard things and I know as parents, we're okay, I want you, I don't want you to be stuck in this place. I don't want you to be dealing with the same kind of things I have dealt with or not feel seen, but base, I love what you just said there. You're speaking truth to them. You've got this. Even Mm -hmm. if as a mom on the inside, you're going, I don't know if you've got this. I'm scared. (laughs) Um, Most of the time you're going to think, I don't know, or I don't think you do. Yeah, totally. So you've got this. And then I love that you said encouraging them to speak Mm -hmm. the truth. And I just had John Acuff on my podcast talking about his book, Soundtracks. And uh, one of the things we were talking about is what does it look like to um, have truthful soundtracks, even as a kid? And that's something that I have felt is, you know, talking with friends who are in their 30s and their 40s, starting to go to counseling and realizing, oh, I believed that lie when I was a kid that's been playing in my head on a loop for the last however many years. I finally realized that's not true. Mm -hmm. And so one of the thoughts I've had is what would it look like to have kids be able to identify as a kid? What is true? What is, and yes, this, this is scary going into this place. That is true. This is big. Starting elementary school, whatever the um, thing, speaking in front of the class, like those things are hard. Yeah. What does it look like to say, this is, this feels a little bit scary. I think I can do this or like having kind of those truthful statements. Exactly. Um, That's so good. 
Yes. I, and one of the first things I do with kids is I have them give their worry a name. So for little ones, like the worry monster or whatever, I let them come up with their own name for it with in the adolescent book, I called it the worry whisperer, because that's what it feels like. These, these, un, these lies are being whispered in the back of our mind. And for, I mean, for us, like you said, we think it's true, but to, for kids, especially. And so when they can come up with a name and you can even say as a parent, tell me what your worry monster is saying to you right now. Because it's saying something and then they know it's not them. It's not true. It's this outside voice is so helpful because it gives them more power over the voice. And then they can speak truth back. Okay, what do you want to say to your worry monster? Or what do you want to say back to the worry whisperer? And I'll, I mean, like with high school kids, they'll come up with funny names like Agnes and all these different things. And even their friends will say like, you tell Agnes, she better shut up because she doesn't have any power here, you know, or. They just can learn. I think anytime we can separate it out like that, it's so helpful. And one of the really fascinating things about anxiety is that I think it, I mean, genetically, there is a component to it. So if as a parent, you have anxiety, your kids are seven times more likely just based on your genes. But also it's this really fascinating study in temperament where every, you know, I don't know how many thousands of kids I've counseled now with anxiety, every single one of them is really bright, really conscientious. They care deeply. They try so hard and they just can't turn the volume knob down. And I think the same is true of us as adults. And, you know, we're never going to change the fact that a child or that we're conscientious and we care and try hard. And so that means that anxiety, I think, is never 100% gone. I think it just pops up in different seasons and about different things. And I could do a timeline for you for kids and anxiety and the subjects. It basically morphs. It's like whack-a-mole over time. And in the beginning for younger kids, it's I'm afraid my mom or dad's going to die. And then they get a little bit older and I'm afraid, you know, they've never thrown up very much and they throw up once. And all of a sudden they think I'm going to throw up. And then they get a little bit older and I'm going to fail on a test. And it it changes, but the really cool thing is that the same tools that work about losing my mom or dad work for failing a test. Like the same tools work no matter what it's about. It's never really about the thing anyway. And so when they can give it a name and your child all of a sudden comes back to you and says, I'm terrified of getting on this airplane and going on our trip this summer, you can say, okay, well, what did we do with the worry monster last time? Because the same thing's going to work. What'd you tell him last time? Because we're going to go back to the same tools because they're going to work again. Now, one thought that just came to mind is when kids get really worked up. Yes. They get kind of in that place. And again, it could be, could be kids, could be teens. I have known to get worked up as well. Yes, um, me too. It's really hard to rationalize. It's hard to say like, here's the time to have these tools. So would you say it's good to share with kids um, in a state of calm, we're now going to learn some tools so that when you get to this place where can't reason with you, I have my four-year-old, almost five-year-old uh, is definitely my most expressive child <laughs> and uh, loves to talk and really get stressed when she cannot fully interrupt whatever is going on and get her words out and stomping, like all the things. Mm-hmm. And so we often are saying to her, okay, let's, her, her preschool had taught her how to relax, squeeze and relax, like Tigger, calm down, have these breaths. Good. So what is happening? I've heard you talk about this. What is happening in kids when they get to that state of really overworked? I love that you asked that and that you talked about your daughter in preschool because we can teach really young kids what's happening and teach them to take deep breaths. And as silly as you may think all the breathing and the mindfulness is there's some science to it. And so I'll explain what's happening. So for all of us, you know, when you and I are having this conversation, when folks are listening, you, you have blood flowing all throughout your brain, including going to the prefrontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex helps us think rationally and manage our emotions. When we get really anxious, also when we get angry, sometimes the blood flow in our brain shifts. And it leaves the prefrontal cortex and the blood vessels constrict 
and they shift that blood back to the amygdala, which is this tiny almond. There are two of them, almond shaped regions in the back of our brain. And those are the ones that dictate fight or flight. And so I sit with parents every day who say, my child is like a crazy person and I can't talk them down. Exactly. Because that part of their brain that would be able to be talked down isn't even getting blood. And so deep breathing dilates the blood vessels of their brain again, and it shifts the blood back to the prefrontal cortex. And I mean, I have a two and a half year old nephew and his parents are doing great about, they'll say, Henry, take a breath. And last week I watched him take a breath and turn to somebody else and say, it feels really good to take deep breaths. I mean, at two and a half. So we can start really early. And the way that I have kids do it, my favorite technique to do it is I call it square breathing. And, you know, of course I have girls who are like, well, can I draw a flower instead of a square? They can draw whatever they want, but that's just what I call it. Now the boys at Daystar would call it combat breathing because it sounds cooler and there's more buy-in and it's actually a Navy SEALs kind of tactic that they have to use because they have to be in their right brain you know, in their thinking brain before they go into certain situations. So what you do is you put your hand on your leg and you literally draw a square or flower with your finger. And with each line of the square, you breathe a different way. So the first line you breathe in. So deep breath in, pause in the corner for three seconds, deep breath out with the next line, and then continue the square for at least 20 seconds, 20 seconds of deep breathing resets the amygdala. So as a grown up, you can do it in traffic. You can, I mean, I speak sometimes in front of large groups. I will stand over to the side if I get nervous for some reason, and I'll do a little square breathing on my leg. And, and that's always my first go-to with kids. My second go-to we can talk about too, but they're called grounding techniques and they're sensory related. And the cool thing about drawing the square on your leg, because it's tactile, it's also grounding. So it kind of accomplishes two things at once. So yes, starting with breathing always with kids, whether they're anxious or they're frustrated, I think can really be helpful, but you can't start when they're at an eight on a one to 10 scale. You want to start at two or three. And and if you're already at eight, I would suggest having a move. Like they need to go run up and down the stairs or go jump on a trampoline or run a lap around your house or something like that before you start to do the practical things that can help. That's so good. Um, you just mentioned the grounding techniques. What would you do for those? So, yeah, that's my second. First is always breathing. Second is I tell kids that anxiety is a lot like the one loop roller coaster at the fair and they get a scary thought in their head and it just keeps going and they can't get it out. And so we've got and, and y'all, this is true for us, too, as grown ups. So we, we've got to pull them out of the loop. So breathing first and then anything that requires focus really is grounding and and especially sensory data coming in requires focus so my favorite one is five four three two one and so in that I would say and I practice with kids in my office all the time I'll say tell me five things you see right now and make them look around and pick out five things they see okay tell me four things you hear and you have to really listen to pick out four things you hear at the same time Tell me three things you feel, not emotionally, but from a tactile sense. You know, I feel my jeans, I feel my whatever. Tell me two things you smell and tell me one thing you taste. And I'm old enough, I get it backwards all the time. It doesn't matter what order we go in, but just it's the five senses. So that's one I do a lot. Or just tell me everything right now you see that's the color blue. Or even I'll have kids do math problems, like count backwards from 100 by ones, if they're younger, older kids, I'll say count backwards from a hundred by seven, which that requires focus for any of us, you know, to do that kind of math. Well, and it, it sounds a lot like the classic toddler distraction trick where your toddler's having a meltdown and you're like, oh, look at this, fl- this flower, or actually <laughs> what I did with my husband when I was having a C-section and he's very uh, queasy when it comes to blood. I just started asking him about his favorite hockey team. I was like, tell me about yes, He was like, this good. is amazing. I've wanted to talk about this. <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh, that's yeah, awesome. That's now, I, so, wanna, I can't believe you had the presence of mind to do that. That's amazing. I, You know, I, uh, yeah, honestly, God, God helped us through that because it was, it was touch and go for him. Um, yeah. Now, I want to ask you a little bit about um, just the differences in spotting anxiety Um, In our kids, maybe the differences that show up between girls and boys, um, Mm -hmm. and even some of the ways that anxiety can kind of be hiding 
um, in our girls that we may not notice. And then maybe it, I've heard you say like it can come out later on in kind of a bigger way, but what are just some of the low lying things or the ways that it can kind of present itself? Well, it's hard to tell. And I think it's especially hard to tell with girls because what we talked about, the temperament. I mean, the girls who are anxious really are the the ones that you go in for a parent teacher conference and they say, you're, I wish every child in my class was like your daughter. And because she is trying so hard to please the teacher and she's doing so well and she's compliant and often perfectionistic. And, and then maybe she gets in the car after school and loses it with you or gets really angry, but you're the only place she does that. I mean, that is a scientific fact that girls reserve their most negative emotions for home. And so I, I, boys, I can attest to that. You for can, sure. <laughs> I bet. Yes. And so boys, I think we recognize it more quickly because they are potentially acting out at school too. And it's fascinating. Anxiety and ADHD are almost identical symptomatically. So neither one boys or girls can't focus typically, but girls, even girls with ADHD, it's the same. I will battle with school teachers sometimes with a girl with ADHD because she can, she uses up every bit of the energy to focus at school. And then she has zero left for home. And so they don't pick up on it at school because of that wanting to please, but boys often will act out more. We're going to see more anger across the board. A lot of kids because they're pushing down their anxiety, it shoots out sideways as anger. And in the Raising Worry-Free Girls book, I talk about how most girls who have anxiety are either exploders. And so there are the parents that I sit down with and they say, my daughter is really controlling. She's really manipulative. She has these anger outbursts all the time. And the more we talk about it, I'll always say, you know, tell me, when are you seeing that? Like, what does it seem like her triggers are? What patterns do you see with it? And it really always is transitions. It's unpredictability. It's you pick her up from school and she thought you were going to go straight home and she was going to have all this time at home in the afternoon. It was her one day she didn't have any activities. And instead you say, oh, we have to go see your grandmother. And then we've got to go run this errand and that. And she totally melts down. And the parents will say, She's being manipulative because she's not getting her way. And it feels like that sometimes, but that's really not it. It's that she had this one thing in her mind and you just changed it and she has no control. I mean, if you said to me at three o'clock one afternoon, everything you think is going to happen for the next four hours isn't, and you have no control over it, it doesn't matter what you want. I might lose my mind, (laughs) get really have a huge outburst too, but they don't have the words to say, it makes me anxious when you change my schedule at the last minute. And so it comes out as anger. And so those are our exploders. Our imploders are the ones who typically have chronic stomach aches, chronic headaches. They get really tearful. They will pull back from certain activities. Now, maybe it will come out with you, but if it does anywhere, it's only going to be with you. And they just feel so much pressure and are often putting that pressure on themselves. And so it's going to come out in these other, other ways. And then the really exploiters, imploders, and another primary way I think we recognize it is kids who have endless questions about often the same topic. Or they're kids who will, you know, you're putting them to bed at night. Tell me the schedule for tomorrow. What are we doing now? When's, when's this going to happen? What's happening next? And then may even make you go over it again. Or at bedtime, they have a routine you have to do. And you say this, and then they respond that way, and then you sorry. have to turn off. I'm having trouble hearing you. But so sorry. Siri yeah. thought I was talking to her on my watch. Um, so you say one thing. They have to say something back. You have to go through the same system every night, and if you don't, you might even have to start over. And that's anxiety-driven. And is that something you would say um, – like, what would a parent do in that situation? Do you just say, okay, we're going to keep going with this routine? Or like, I'm just wondering, because everything you said there, I think a lot of parents could recognize. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering for the parents, like, what what do you do there? Is it is there a is there a route something to start kind of asking for? Because that's, that's what I often find with my kids where they will have their own coping mechanisms, mm-hmm. but then it's actually trying to find out what the root is, is hard because kids yes. don't always know what it is. Exactly. And you're like, I actually want to help you 
but help me help you. Like, how do we, right. how do we get there? Yes. And I, I mean, I, you're so wise to say that because that's what they're doing. Those are coping strategies they've created without knowing even coping strategies exist. It's more of this is what I've got to do to make myself feel secure. And so I, I think in the beginning, we don't want to disrupt that too much. But I think like a routine, what we could do is say, you know, tell me what you're worried about at night. I wouldn't talk about it at night because I think it can make them more fearful. But as you were saying earlier, in a calmer moment, you know, what is, especially if you've already kind of introduced the worry monster idea, what does the worry monster tell you at night when you're trying to go to bed? Because I think he's telling you something. And I think sometimes those things we do are things you feel like help. And, and we're not going to have to change that right now. But you you don't want to be dependent on having to do the same thing because then when you go have a sleepover, you're not going to be able to do it. And so I want you to trust yourself more than you trust these things we have in place or this system. And, and with questions, research says we should never answer more than seven questions on the same topic, which is a good, you know, that's a good barometer to know, like, I'm going to stop there. And I think same thing, if they're asking you over and over, you know, tell me what the schedule is this afternoon, or, you know, say it's about COVID and they're going back to school for the first time and they're saying, what, what safety measures are going to be in place? What's the school doing? What do I need to know? You know, even if they're just going to a new school, what does my hallway look like? You know, do the things that help them. I always think it's a great idea to get online and see if you can have a virtual tour or have a real tour. But if they keep going with questions to say, you know what? I think your worry monster's taken over and he's the one asking the questions now. And I'm not going to answer anymore because I want you to answer him. And I want you to tell him what you think about the messages he's trying to tell you. So we're kind of firming up their voice again. Well, I feel like, again, going back to that, like, um, you know, what is the, what is the fear there in that moment? And there's something that happens for all of us when we can really kind of going back to what we started with speak out the truth and sometimes even getting to that place. Um, I know my, one of my children shall remain nameless, uh, recently had trouble, um, sleeping in her bed and was sleeping mm -hmm. on the floor. And I was like, and a few nights I just kind of said, what, why are you sleeping on the floor? Like what, what's going on here? And, oh, you know, it's more comfortable. I was like, it's more comfortable than your bed. <laughs> okay. That's, and the bed is a loft bed. So it's, you know, something is happening. Yeah. So this one night, one night I just went in really calmly. I said, hey, I said, you know, I'm just going to ask you once and, you know, you don't have to answer, but I'd love to know, like, is there, is there one thing that is just keeping you, um, is there one fear you have or what? I can't remember exactly how we word it, but I was very just calm and casual, kind of like you said, breezy. breezy. <laughs> and, um, and she said, well, you know, I, I think I have to keep my toes inside because my stuffies are going to come alive and they're gonna, you know, attack mm. me or something. And I said, and I just, I'm amazed at how I respond. I just said, oh, I totally get that. Like I just said, Way that's what I, um, that's how I felt as a kid. I said, I often had these things. I said, you know, as a kid, I was afraid I would put, and I didn't want to really scare her again at night. I said, I was afraid when I put my feet over the bed that an alligator would be there. I was like, how crazy is that? And so I was sharing my own thing. And what I found from that, the next night she slept in her bed, Wow. Way and I, to go. I felt like she was able to get that thing, that fear that was in her mm. head out. And as soon as she spoke it, it was kind of like, okay, I, I heard her, but she was able to recognize that's, that's probably not true. Right. Mm. Like just getting the, and it wasn't locked in her head growing, but was mm. able to kind of come out. And so, um, for me, it was again, that the power of getting things out of our, out of our head yes. and, and speaking those things out and even sharing them with somebody else. And, mm. and I think that's a hard thing is that fear and anxiety, they're not, they're not rational, but they right. grow and they can really leave us in that place of being paralyzed as adults, yes. Yes. as kids. I know that's, you know, anxiety is not, um, something that's just happening with kids. Mm. And so just as we start to wrap up here, I'd love to just talk to, um, the anxious woman, you know, whether she's a parent or not, um, what, what would you say to the woman who feels like I, I am struggling mm. with anxiety. I, I feel like I get bound by various fears and worries. 
Um, what would you say to that woman who just feels like this has been a road I've walked for so long? Um, mm. And do you have any thoughts for that woman listening? Yes. Well, the first I would say is that it's really because God gifted you in this really amazing way that you even struggle with it. And in the, um, in the adolescent book, I talk about, I don't know if you're old enough to remember, but the 45s, the albums, the little records that there was a, a single that an artist released and you would buy it for the single. And on the flip side was some song that, you know, they thought would never see the light of day. And so they put it on the other side of the single. And I think that is true of anxiety. Like it really is because of all of those things we were talking about with kids. It's because God made you to be this gifted, aware, you're intelligent, deeply caring, thoughtful person. It is amazing things about who he's made you to be. And they're going to trip you up sometimes from time to time. And it's going to be hard to turn that volume knob down. And so out of that, I mean, I think I would start practicing those first three things that you start thinking about deep breathing, resetting your amygdala in that way, start thinking about when you get stuck in a loop. And we all, you know, what we talk about as adults is their intrusive thoughts. And we all have thousands of intrusive thoughts a day. It does not mean anything is wrong with you. Even if it's, I could drop drive off this bridge really easily. That doesn't mean you're suicidal. That means you had an intrusive thought. You know, we all just have those things. And sometimes they feel like crazy thoughts, but it's just, it's just part of what happens in life. And so it's when the intrusive thoughts get stuck that characterize anxiety. And so be aware when you have intrusive thoughts, do some deep breathing and then do some grounding, do your own five, four, three, two, one, whether you're in the car, whether you're you know, dropping your kids off at swim lessons or whether you're going on a trip by yourself for the first time in a long time, whatever it is, getting on an airplane, do that work. And I think to start to recognize the voice and come up with your own name for it because we hear lies all the time. And I think, I mean, in all these years of doing parenting seminars and writing and studying, researching girls and boys, you know, one of my favorite things I ever read, it's terrible, but it's, I, it was so helpful to me is that some, when something goes wrong in a boy's world, he blames someone else. And when something goes wrong in a girl's world, she blames herself. And that does not matter how old we are. And that voice, that critical voice, I think is the worry monster too. He's just telling us lies that are not true about who we are. And so we need to have truth we can have that battles that voice. And so scripture, you know, any kind of truth that you can anchor to in those moments and to say to that voice, you don't have any power over me. You have no authority over me. I'm not going to listen to you. And I can do hard things. Like that's who God made me to be. That's so good. Um, I, uh, I want to go back to what you said about this idea of intrusive thoughts mm -hmm. and all these thoughts. And I hope that um, if, if you have not heard that before, that you picked up on that, that um, I love the example you gave even of that. I've had that driving, driving down this and you're like, what if I drove off this ditch? And it's like, what? Yes. Um, and I remember actually my husband um, did a talk on this a number of years ago and he actually had shared some of his intrusive thoughts. And I was like, what are these thoughts you've had? We've been married for so long because they are just things that in many ways they are tailor-made to us and our fears right. and these what ifs and these things that come. And the thing that I have found over the last number of years, going from a place of really paralyzing anxiety when mm -hmm. I had my first, because um, I don't know of anyone who hasn't had some sort of anxiety when they first have a baby. It's so exactly. overwhelming. Yes. Um, and so going from a place of those paralyzing thoughts and just being feeling kind of terrorized by thoughts of fear um, mm. for my daughter, being able to take those thoughts captive to me has felt like um, going to the gym. And for the first time, you're like, I'm so weak. I don't understand any of this equipment. Mm. I don't know what I'm doing. But daily going to the gym and being like, I'm getting a bit stronger. I'm getting a bit stronger. And being that much more aware when a thought comes your way, because the thoughts still come my way about um, safety for my kids. The thoughts love to come in the middle of the night and of share, tell me what a terrible parent I am and how yes. much they're in danger. 
And so um, being able to take those thoughts captive, especially in the day, has really helped me sleep much more deeply at night. And a recent example I want to share is that my four-year-old, we were at the beach recently, and she had collected this starfish, and she had a little pool of water, and various creatures were in this pool of water. And so she's four, and this boy comes up to her, and he's probably seven or eight, and he's like, oh, what do you got there? And he's checking out her stuff, and he he picks up the starfish, and he begins to walk away. And she is she's feisty. She turned to him, and she and she just shouted like, no. And he he jumped, and he 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 dropped the starfish and kind of ran. And I thought that is actually what we have to do. Mm. You know, thoughts come our way, and just be able to kind of slam that door and say no. Like right. you actually don't get to I be here. That. And yeah. so the more you identify that the thoughts coming your way are not always true. As again, I just shared I. In uh, Johnny Cuff's book, the soundtracks, we say, are they true? Are they helpful? Are they kind? And and really paying attention to the thoughts that are coming our way and being able to speak out what is true. And sometimes it's a battle. Mm. It's it. I can make it sound really easy from this side of you know a few years of working on this, but sometimes it feels like oh, this is a. I'm still kind of I'm battling this thought, almost mm. like a. Um, a sword fight. Uh, but mm. I just want to encourage you if you're listening and it feels like the battle to keep keep having the battle speaking up the truth with someone you trust, whether it's a counselor um, or a trusted friend to say, hey, this mm. is the thing I've been feeling and let them speak the truth over you. Um, because we, and just as, as Sissy said at the beginning, we're going to do that for ourselves and we're going to teach our kids to do that, to speak the truth mm. of really who God has created us to be and sometimes it's hard because sometimes we can't see it for ourselves and we need others yes. to speak into that place. So true. I love that. Yeah. Well, Sissy, this has been such a rich conversation. Um, I'm so thankful that you are doing this work, not only releasing resources, but you're on the ground um, mm. doing this work with kids in their daily Thank lives. You. And so... Um, I just am really thankful for you and uh, I trust this resources as well as the others are going to deeply impact um, everyone's life. So where can people find Thank your book? You. Where can they find you? Well, raisingboysandgirls.com is our collective. The My friends that I write with, it's our collective website and we have a podcast called Raising Boys and Girls. And then also on Instagram, we're under that name, trying to put out as much helpful information as we can constantly. And I specifically am talking a lot about anxiety on my own Instagram. That's Sissy Goff, just because especially in the season we're in, I just want to help as much as I can. So those are all kind of platforms that folks can find us. Well, that is awesome. Thank you, Sissy. And I trust this episode has helped you move one step closer to thriving. Can I just say thank you for listening? This space has been incredibly encouraging for me this past year. And as I am being deeply encouraged by these conversations, I trust you are as well. And I'm not going to ask you to rate the show or subscribe, but I am going to ask if while you were listening today, a friend popped into your mind and you thought, hmm, I think they could use this encouragement. Can I ask you to share this episode with them, with one person? When I listen to podcasts on my phone, there are three little dots at the bottom right and I click there to share. Also, can I say sometimes I don't share with others as I'm worried about what they'll think of me if they think I'm bugging them by sharing something, but when someone shares something with me, I am never bothered. Often it is the exact thing I needed to hear. So if someone popped into your mind, click those three little dots and share this encouraging conversation with them. And thank you for listening to Ready to Thrive.